For more information about our teaching and preaching ministry, you can find us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The following sermon has been brought to you by Cornerstone Orlando, making disciples for the glory of God. Good evening, everyone. Good to see you back tonight. We're back in our study of Revelation. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 9. It's nice to see you. Nice to be back with you on a Sunday evening. Uh, Nice to be able to work through the book of Revelation together. Just very much enjoying that, enjoying the time that we have to uh, study this book. Tonight we're going to finish up chapter 9. We're moving right along in our progression through this uh, revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we're going to consider, um, in particular, verses 20 and 21 this evening. But I want to give you a little bit of background and and, uh, some context. We'll begin reading in verse 13. So we'll read our text, we'll pray, and we'll consider uh, our text this evening and what the Lord has to say for us in uh, Revelation chapter 9. This is Revelation chapter 9, verses 13 through 21. Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. Now the number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. And thus I saw the horses in the vision. Those who sat on them had breastplates of fiery red, hyacinth, blue, and sulfur yellow. And the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions, and out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and brimstone. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which came out of their mouths. For their power is in their mouth and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents having heads, and with them they do harm. But the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. This is the word of God, amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Uh, Thank you for this um, encouragement to the church uh, in that you have revealed uh, those things which take place in these last days, in these perilous times in which we find ourselves. You reveal them to us through your word, uh, the capstone of the canon, Revelation, and how um, the the scriptures all point forward uh, to these times and the way that you are working in the the earth and the, the judgments that you're pouring out all pointing forward to a a final judgment in the consummation of your kingdom upon the earth. And we, Lord, your people, are in, encouraged by this. We're reassured by it. We're exhorted by it to cling to you in faith. We're uh, warned to, uh, in this to pray and to hold fast to your word and to weather the storms that come our way uh, through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And we're grateful to know, Lord, that he walks in the midst of the lampstands caring for his church. Be with us tonight, Lord, as we consider this text together and uh, those things which are taking place 
Um, it seems even now as we speak, um, we see this manifested in our own day and age. And would pray, Lord, that you would help us, you would preserve us, uh, cause us to remain steadfast in our work, uh, knowing that our labor in the Lord is never in vain. We love you. We thank you for our time together tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. So the title of our sermon this evening, and they did not repent, they did not repent, Revelation chapter 9, verses 13 through 21, particularly verses 20 and 21. So we're back in our Sunday evening study of Revelation, the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, where now we're considering, again, the cycle of the trumpets, and the passage before us reveals the blast of the sixth trumpet, and the second of three intense woes, severe woes, that are poured out upon those who dwell on the earth. Uh, the trumpet itself, as we've talked about, is often used in the scriptures to sound the alarm, right? To sound an alarm. But this alarm, with this particular alarm, the danger is dramatically intensified now by the presence of these three angelic woes. And woes meant to proclaim the misery and the sorrow associated with God's righteous judgment. Uh, when God pronounces a woe, ooh-ay, ooh-ay, it's a word that communicates the misery, the sorrow that is associated with God's judgment. Now, our scene opens with a voice from the altar of incense, uh, that altar from which the prayers of the saints are depicted as rising before the throne of God, rising to God himself in the most holy place. And as the saints, as the, the prayers of the saints rise before God, a voice from that altar commands the angel who sounded the sixth trumpet to release four angels. And we know that these four angels are released in judgment upon the earth. There are four angels bound to the east at the river Euphrates in the land of Shinar at the very banks of Babylon. The scarlet whore who makes herself drunk with the wine of her fornication, drunk with the blood of the saints. These are four angels, four fallen angels who've been prepared for this very day. Four angels who are given authority over the four corners of the earth, as it were, to kill a third of mankind. These fallen angels, these hellish horsemen, have at their command a great army consisting of literally myriads of myriads, right? The number in the New King James doesn't do it, doesn't do it justice. Literally, it's myriads of myriads, an innumerable mass demonic horde. And that horde is described in images that prove reminiscent of the fire and brimstone that rained down in judgment upon the wicked at Sodom and Gomorrah. They have heads of lion, lions communicating their fierceness, communicating their power, and described in colors, if you will, that represent the fire and brimstone poured out in judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah. However, the murderous force of this demonic horde isn't to be found in their physical strength or in their physical prowess. Rather, their power to kill is depicted by what proceeds out of their mouths. That's interesting, Right? Out of their mouths spew a death-ensnaring lie, death-ensnaring deceit, the heretical doctrines of demons described in John's vision as fire and smoke and brimstone. And again, remember, if you put that connection together, the fire, the smoke, and the brimstone, um, images depicting God's judgment, then we're to connect those two things, and, to con and this suggests that what comes out of their mouths the lies, the deceits, the false teaching, as it were, is a judgment of God upon the wicked. It comes forth out of their mouths as fire and smoke and brimstone. 
Verse 18, by these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which came out of their mouths. And we're to see in that certainly physical death. Physical death on the planet is often associated with worldly ideologies and worldly philosophies, doctrines of demons that predominate among the wicked that cause wars and rumors of wars and terrorism and deaths and murders and abortion and all those plagues upon the earth, right? And those are to be seen. We see those as the judgment of God. But also, because of what is coming out of their mouths is associated with doctrines of demons, there's also a spiritual death that is involved. Not just a physical death, but a spiritual death. And you see in this, in verse 18 in particular, that our battle is not with flesh and blood. We're not talking about a flesh and blood war, if you will, with physical people on the earth, as it were. But our battle, as Paul says, is against principalities and against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. In other words, the demonic forces that hoard behind those physical people, those physical manifestations of God's judgment. Their power is in their mouth. And like that demonic locust horde from the bottomless pit, they have tails which inflict a poisonous or a toxic sting, tails like serpents, the seed of the devil, having heads, verse 19, that suggests they have the ability to reason. They're capable of reason. And it says they're with them, with their tails, they do harm. That word harm meaning injustice. They do unrighteousness. They foment injustice or foment unrighteousness upon the earth. So what John sees then in this demonic swarm that is unleashed upon the earth to kill a third of mankind is a terrifying picture of the devastating effects of false teaching. A terrifying picture of the devastating effects of worldly ideologies and worldly philosophies, those doctrines of demons that are behind uh, so much death on the planet. And with this picture that's painted for us, we're to see depicted the evil of that false teaching, the evil of what comes out of their mouths. And so if we picture this together, think with me. Can you imagine one of these things chasing you down in a dark alley? Right? The way, the way this thing is described, can you imagine? We probably, you've probably seen that on a movie or two, that kind of thing depicted. But put yourself in the place of that, right? Uh, in the dark alley, this thing coming at you. Brothers and sisters, we should look at false teaching that way. Uh, it should be abhorrent to us. Error should be like one of these things chasing us down in a dark alley. If you've ever been in real danger, real peril, gripped with terror, then you know a little something of the terror that awaits those who have suppressed God's truth in their unrighteousness. Right? You have a little bit of a, a taste of that. Terror should point us forward. Uh, that's what we're to see in these doctrines of demons. That's what we're to see uh, in false teaching. I, I've I'm sure you have too. We've talked to so many people uh, over the years, witnessing to people that, you know, their essential um, rebuttal to anything we're saying from the Bible is like, what's the big deal? What's the big, we're just, these are semantic differences. Listen, these differences don't come down to mere words. Uh, what we're talking about is the doctrines of demons. We're talking about false teaching that imperils someone's soul right? Peter describes false teaching. Uh, and the one who is under false teaching, they're responsible for coming under false teaching, but they're also victims, if you will, of the false teachers themselves. And again, in this case, 
the demons behind them. Dr. Beale describes this plague of death this way. He said it includes all the forms of death that the ungodly undergo from illness, tragedy, and so on, but the death stroke against their bodies makes certain their spiritual death for eternity since those who physically die in an unbelieving state remain in that condition forever. Now the fire, the smoke, and brimstone, a word there for sulfur, mentioned three times. That, th- those descriptions mentioned three times in this passage, those words are used exclusively of final judgment, right? Everywhere in this letter, fire, smoke, brimstone used to depict, if you will, final judgment everywhere else in this letter. That depiction is portrayed as the death to which unbelievers are delivered by this demonic horde. In other words, by this demonic horde, unbelievers are are delivered to a death of fire, smoke, and brimstone. Now, what does that do? That merely points forward to final judgment. So the death that they suffer by the fire, by the smoke, and by the brimstone really is a foreshadowing, if you will, and oftentimes that physical death merely a foreshadowing of ultimate spiritual death in which with the devils and their angels will be plunged into the lake which burns with fire, and brimstone, which is the second death. They'll suffer that second death in eternity. This is merely a picture. All this, this is meant to inform our understanding of the dangers of false teaching. If you remember the Lord's uh, letters to the seven churches, the first cycle at the beginning of Revelation, and the Lord Jesus Christ writing to the churches, he's writing to the churches, and he's warning the churches from persecutions from without, and false teaching and error from within, and he's charging the church to be steadfast, charging the church to overcome. In some places, correcting the church and calling them to repentance. And oftentimes that repentance called, uh, called for because of their failure to deal effectively with false teaching in their midst, right? So the Lord warning the churches at the first cycle, warning the churches of false teaching. And here it is, we see this false teaching fomented by this demonic horde that is unleashed upon the world. How many, think with me, how many countless millions have perished in their sin in the grips of Roman Catholicism? How many? The medieval age um, its an age of darkness lasted a thousand years before the Reformation. How many countless untold millions perished in their sin? How many millions perish resting in the fact that they walked an aisle and said a prayer? How many? Right? That deadly, little, simplistic, superstitious lie That's what it is to believe false teaching. That's what it is to believe the lie. To believe something that isn't in God's revealed word is to play a deadly game with your soul. And that kind of spiritual delusion is characteristic of our age, isn't it? We see the work of this demonic horde all around us in our day and age. John was praying a little bit ago about slander. Uh, It's often that when somebody... um, leaves us, gets angry about it, will you know, cast grenades back our way on the way out, and will say, oh, they think they're the only true church. 
You don't hear us ever say anything like that here, that we're the only true church. You can't find another good church anywhere in Orlando. You never hear us say that. We never say that. But is it difficult to find a good church? You bet it is. You bet it is. And why is that? Because error is rampant in the professing church today. Those who believe something that is not in the Bible are playing a deadly game with their soul. It's according to the work of Satan. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 10, listen. According to the work of Satan, with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion. Does that sound reminiscent of Romans chapter 9? Whom he wills, he hardens. God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie so that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. One of the hardening agents that God uses in judgment upon the wicked is the hardening agent of delusion, (laughs) strong delusion that they should believe the lie. So in Revelation chapter 9, the blast of the sixth trumpet, there is physical death, certainly. A third of mankind killed as a result of the deadly and demonic ideologies, idolatries that are vomited across this globe by a terrifying multitude of demons, and that merely a foretaste, a foretaste of the lake which burns with fire and brimstone where the smoke of their torment rises forever. You would think, in light of that, you would think that in the the literal presence of all that death, you would think that in the, in the midst of a culture of death that we're certainly in the midst of, you would think that the rest of mankind not killed by those plagues would discern in them the judgment of Almighty God and they would repent of their sin. Any rationally thinking person would connect the dots and flee to Christ for mercy. They would acknowledge the torment inflicted And they would witness the death that envelops the globe, and they would repent. But, verse 20, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Verse 20 begins with a description of the earth dwellers who survived the hellish horsemen and their armies. They weren't yet killed by these plagues, the fire, the smoke, and the brimstone. Even the use of that word plague, right, is reminiscent of the plagues over Egypt that we looked at this morning in the hardening of Pharaoh. There are those, verse 4, who do not have the seal of God upon their foreheads. Those are the ones that we're talking about here. Those who are the objects of God's retributive wrath, his retributive justice, and those who nevertheless have survived the outpouring of God's wrath to this point, they will not ultimately escape. Verse 20, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues. That's those who are talking about these earth dwellers. Notice, as earth dwellers, they are not citizens of heaven. These are not citizens of the kingdom. If you remember, citizens of the the kingdom were sealed on their foreheads by God. They're being preserved through this plague. These unbelieving earth dwellers are characterized in our text by two primary traits or marks. First, they are shockingly impenitent. 
Verse 20, they did not repent of the works of their hands. Verse 21, they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. So they're marked by a shocking and astonishing impenitence. And second, they are idolaters. Verse 20, they worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. These are described well in the language of Romans chapter 1, verse 21, if you remember that text that we went through. Although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, birds and four-footed animals and creeping things, right? Their idolatry. These are idolaters. They're marked by idolatry. But then Paul goes on in verse 24. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness. There's their immorality, right? Even their immorality, a judgment of God upon them. God gave them up. This is the, the wrath of God's abandonment. God gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie, right? Those who were idolaters, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie, who embraced the false teaching, they embraced the poison, the toxin spewing forth from the demon's mouth, so to speak. God gave them up to immorality and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. As we've already seen, God essentially pours out his judgment upon unbelieving earth dwellers for two primary reasons. And those two primary reasons exemplified in the plagues poured out upon the Egyptians at the Exodus. One, because they exalt themselves against the people of God. And two, because of their idolatry. Unbelievers are idolaters. Now, consider those two reasons earlier, those two marks. One, they're shockingly impenitent. Second, they're idolaters. First, consider with me that they are shockingly impenitent. They did not repent. Verse 20, Verse 20 implies, the fact that they did not repent implies that they were affected by this plague of death, right? The plague of death impacted them, affected them. They acknowledge, they understand, they understand, and they do not repent. So it implies, it suggests they were touched in some way with the misery, with the woe, and they do not repent. And yet, having survived by the skin of their teeth, they remain unmovable, immovable, intransigent, right? Why is that? It's because they do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. God is not preserving them. The intention of God in pouring out his judgment is actually to judge. Now, there will be people who will turn in repentance. There will be those who repent. But the purpose of this time, the purpose of these judgments is not to um, cultivate, if you will, or provoke repentance. It's to pour out judgment upon the wicked. These are being poured out as judgments upon the wicked. And those upon whom these judgments are poured out remain in their sin and in their idolatry-hardened condition. Just like Pharaoh was ultimately hardened by the death of the firstborn in Egypt. Hardened by the work of God, if you will, throughout that whole experience. He pursued Israel into the Red Sea. And so that God might make his power known, Romans 9, he remained impenitent to his death. These remained impenitent. They're hardened. Judgment for them is determined. That doesn't mean that some won't turn. And we do see some that turn. 
But that's not the intention here. The, the intention is to pour out judgment upon them. And just as the, the death all around them signaled final judgment, as it were, in the Red Sea, so death all around these surviving earth dwellers simply signals that their final judgment is inevitable and inescapable. They will be destroyed at the blast of the seventh trumpet with the brightness of his coming. All of this should point unbelievers to that fact. I've often, in witnessing to someone, have simply said, why is there so much death? You take it to the bank, you're going to die. You're going to die. Why is that? Sin. Sin. There is a judgment coming against sin. We all will stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account of what we've done in the body, whether good or evil. Death should be, how many funerals, right? How many funerals? Death should be a, uh, an exemplary signal of a coming, terrifying judgment. And yet they remain intransigent, gripping to any number of excuses, any number of justifications, any number of foolish ideas in order to justify themselves in their own circumstance and to somehow escape from what is coming, to escape even giving it any attention. The sixth trumpet includes physical and ultimately spiritual death for some. And it includes further hardening, further deception, further rebellion for those that remain, all leading to the glory of God and the execution of his justice. You could say, in the language of Paul from Romans chapter 9, for this very purpose God has raised them up, that he might make his power known in them to display the glory of his name, the glory of his justice. The host of the unsealed will be fully judged to the glory of God. Now, they're shockingly impenitent. What do they fail to repent of? Verse 20, the works of their hands. The works of their hands here further explained as idolatry, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk, right? Notice now, behind the idolatry is the demonic horde, that they should not worship demons. John Calvin said that our hearts are factories of idols. We're factories for idols. We make idols out of everything, right? Everything is an idol, and yet behind those idols, you notice here, John says that they should not worship demons, right? Behind the idolatry is the, demon, the demonic horde spewing their deadly poison, and with their idolatry, they actually worship demons. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 16, listen, of Israel, Deuteronomy 32, 16, says they scornfully esteemed the rock of their salvation. They provoked him to jealousy with foreign gods with abominations, they provoked him to anger, and they sacrificed to demons, not to God, to God's little g they did not know. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that when the Gentiles sacrifice to an idol, they're sacrificing to demons and not to God. Now, their idols, the idols that they are worshiping and sacrificing to the demons behind those idols, the idols are described by a familiar list. Verse 20, they're idols of gold. Silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. Listen to Psalm 115, beginning in verse 4. Their idols, the idols of the, the ungodly, are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. 
They did not repent of the works of their hands, right? These idols, verse 5, have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk, nor do they mutter through their throat. In other words, there is nothing about that idol that should be worshipped. They can neither see, nor hear, nor walk, nor save. The essential nature of that idol is that it is dead. It is dead. They are entirely lifeless and would even be powerless to harm, except that there are demons behind them that use them to deceive. An innumerable army, a locust horde, using them to deceive. And the idol is the means through which demonic forces at work in this world spread their deadly, deceptive, hardening toxin. Our battle is not with flesh and blood, brothers and sisters. Our battle is with principalities and powers. Do you see? Demons using these idols simply to spread their deadly fire, smoke, and brimstone. Now, it's ironic, and it's a judgment upon idolaters that they reflect the spiritually dead nature of the thing that they worship. Those who make them, verse 8, are like them, so is everyone who trusts in them. Interesting, isn't it? Psalm 135, listen to Psalm 135 beginning in verse 15. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Nor is any breath in their mouths. Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. Everyone who makes them, everyone who trusts in them, they also themselves neither see nor hear nor walk. Just like their, just like their idols, they're hard. They're hard. They're like Gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood. Revelation chapter 9, verse 20. These idols are the works of men's hands. They are figments of his fallen imagination. They are the products of his wayward heart. They are weapons in the arsenal of the wicked one, the deceiver. Rather than reflecting the image of their creator... We're made in the image of God, right? But rather than reflect the image of our creator, idolaters reflect the image of the thing that they idolize. They reflect the image of the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. Further, further now, verse 21, they are shockingly impenitent, these unbelieving earth dwellers. 21, they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Twice now, they did not repent. They did not repent. Here, verse 21, they did not repent of a representative list of those sins which characterize the sinful idolater. Again, all sin really is traced back ultimately to idolatry. Those exhibiting, if you think with me about verse 21, those exhibiting a habitual pattern of these sins are exhibiting that pattern as idolaters. The idolatrous root is bearing sinful, bitter fruit. Okay? Now, those who prove themselves to be lawbreakers under the first table of the law will certainly prove themselves to be lawbreakers under the second table of the law. You remember the Ten Commandments, right? The Ten Words. The first table, dealing with our sins against God. 
The second, dealing with sins against our neighbor. Those who prove themselves to be lawbreakers under the first table will manifest the bitter fruit of being lawbreakers under the second table. Now, if you remember from our study of Romans chapter 1, those idolaters who suppress the truth of God in their unrighteousness, who exchange the truth of God for the lie, who exchange the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, what does God do with them? He judges them for their idolatry, and that judgment shows up in their immorality. Romans chapter 1, verse 28. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, because they're idolaters, God gave them over the wrath of God's abandonment. God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. In other words, that bitter fruit proceeds from the idolater. The sins chosen by John to reflect the idolater in Revelation 9, verse 21, are four. It begins with murder. As evidenced in the judgment of the sixth trumpet, a third of mankind is killed. They didn't repent of their murders. Murder, as evidenced in the plague of abortion, for example, endless wars, endless, increasing, almost numbing violence in our own country. Like, are we, how many mass murders now? Are we up to one a week? I mean, it has gotten absurdly evil. The violence is unreal. Mass shootings are commonplace. I remember when it was absolutely shocking. It would occupy the news cycle for a month after a mass shooting. Now it's come and gone in a matter of days. Murder. Second is sorceries. The word is pharmacon. You recognize that word, don't you? It's where we get our word pharmaceuticals from. Magic potions, if you will. Idolatry exercised through the use of substances. Fentanyl, for example. How many lives now has fentanyl claimed? right? Do you think the widespread use of drugs in our society might have anything to do with the widespread proliferation of worldly and demonic lies or ideologies, that demonic horde at work on the planet? Evidenced in idolaters giving themselves up to, consecrating themselves, devoting themselves to idolatrous lusts and appetites. Third is immorality, pornea. The word sounds familiar, doesn't it? where we get our word pornography, we have become a slavishly pornographic society. Porno- and that's not just a click of the button on some horrendous site on the internet. Porno- porno- pornography is everywhere. Pornography is on the b- billboards going down. It's jogging down the road past you as you're on your way to work, right? Pornography is, we have become a slavishly pornographic society. Many addicted to pornography. And that's no excuse for the sin, right? That's no excuse for the sin. Um, Peter says they have eyes which cannot cease from sin. 
Peter's talking about addiction there, what we would characterize as addiction. That's not um, an excuse. That's a terrifying judgment upon the one who is enslaved to, addicted to, for example here, pornography. And they're giving this filth to kids. They're trying to, to make access for this filth in our elementary schools, for heaven's sake. Right? It's just, fourth on the list is thefts. The act of unlawfully taking something from someone. You can take their money unlawfully. You can take their property. You can take that which you've promised to give by not giving it, like time. You can take their reputation with slander. You can fail to give them what you owe them. Thefts, murder, sorceries, immorality, thefts. The fruits of idolatry. Representative list of fruits. They did not repent of these works of their hands. They did not repent of their murders, sorceries, sexual immorality, or thefts. They cling to their idols rather than fleeing to Christ. Absolutely irrational response to all the death and judgment being poured out around them. They will not escape the judgment of God. Revelation chapter 21, verse 7, the Lord says, He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. You notice common language there? Revelation chapter 22, verse 14. Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life, that they may enter through the gates into the city. But outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers, and idolaters, and whoever loves and practices a lie. They refuse to repent because they love and practice lies. These are the doctrines of demons. This is the work of the demonic horde. This is the fire, the smoke, and the brimstone that spews forth, vomited out of their mouths. This is the toxin that kills a third of mankind, certainly with physical death, but ultimately kills mankind with a spiritual death. And they did not repent You see, repentance involves a turning from, but you can't turn from without turning to. Repentance involves a turning from and a turning to. It is a radical change, repentance is, a change of mind, a change of will, a change of emotions, and a change of actions from being bent toward sin and bent toward idolatry to being a slave of trust, of righteousness, of faith, trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith that involves a new commitment of your mind, your will, your emotions, and your actions. First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, Paul commends the Thessalonians for turning to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Praise God. Repentance, Paul says, produces a Godward sorrow over sin leading to salvation, not to be regretted. Impenitence is that which marks the idolater, will occasionally produce a sorrow that is akin to death, a sorrow that is only a worldly sorrow, a sorrow that leads to death. Marks the one who's been hardened by the deceitfulness of his sin. There are several examples of this in the Bible. 
quintessential examples are Pharaoh, for, for example, from Exodus that we talked about this morning. Uh, Pharaoh is the quintessential example of impenitence. The Egyptians, God pouring out his judgments and pouring out his judgments directly against their false gods. And yet, not fleeing those, rather than fleeing those false gods as obviously fake, not able to save, not able to deliver, not able to do anything, rather than fleeing those false gods to almighty God who is judging them, they cling to their idols to their death, (laughs) impenitent. They simply get harder and harder and harder. Turn to Daniel chapter five with me. Let's look there briefly, Daniel chapter five. Another quintessential example It's Belshazzar. If you remember Belshazzar from the Bible, Belshazzar is the son of who? Nebuchadnezzar. Belshazzar would have known all that happened to his father, Nebuchadnezzar. So you would think that Belshazzar would heed the warning that was poured out upon his father, Nebuchadnezzar, and that Belshazzar himself might repent and might avoid the sins of his father. That is not the case. Verse 1, Daniel chapter 5, verse 1. Belshazzar the king made a great feast for a thousand of his lords, drank wine in the presence of the thousand. While he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and the silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple which had been in Jerusalem, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them, that they then they brought the gold vessels that, they had been, that had been taken from the temple of the house of, of God, which had been in Jerusalem, and the kings and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them, and they drank wine with them. They praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron and wood and stone. I'll let you read further to see what happens to poor Belshazzar for his idolatry. Another example we mentioned a moment ago, I remember reminded of the, the many, many funerals that I attended um, before I personally began to preach them <laughs> and the lies that people cling to in the face of death is just is shocking. Um, shocking impenitence, but a shocking willingness to be deceived. A shocking willingness to hold on to thin air in hopes that that will deliver you. Um, It's representative of these idolaters in Revelation chapter nine. In the face of so much death, they refuse to repent. Hear and heed the warning, amen? Hear and heed the warning. First, we must be a repentant people. The letters to the churches in that first cycle call us to repentance. The Lord Jesus Christ calling the people of God to repentance. We must be a people who repent, have tender consciences, informed consciences when it comes to our sin, and pray that God by his spirit would cultivate and maintain within us a humble heart, a contrite heart, a soft disposition to his word. We are to receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save our souls. And secondly, 1 John chapter 5, verse 21, little children, who's John writing to? It's writing to the church. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Do not be deceived. Um, Those who worship them are like them. And our hearts are factories for idols. We must be careful. We must guard 
our hearts according to his word. Keep ourselves from idols. Dig out those things that you are willing to sin in order to get. (laughs) That's a good definition of idolatry. If you're willing to sin in order to get it, if you're willing to fight to get your way, if you're willing to get mad, get angry to get your way, or if you're not willing to go in humble repentance, uh, asking for forgiveness because you want to preserve your rightness in the fight, all of that, right, that shows that you're willing to sin in order to get your way. That's a quintessential definition of idolatry. We have to dig idolatries, idolatry out of our hearts. And thirdly, preach the gospel. <laughs> preach the gospel. We are in a time period in which the gospel is going out to the ends of the earth and the Lord is building his temple, so to speak, living stone upon living stone. He is gathering together his elect from the four corners of the earth out of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And now is the time to preach the gospel. The disciples, the apostles, they all prayed, God, help us to preach your word with boldness and may your word run swiftly and be glorified, right? May the word that is preached from this church, and I mean the word preached by you to those people out there, may it run swiftly and be glorified and may many come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now is the time when the Lord is pouring out mercy, pouring out grace upon his elect. So brothers and sisters, we must be faithful in our preaching of the gospel. And want to see the Lord Jesus Christ receive the full reward of his suffering. Amen. Pray with me. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for these exhortations from your word. Thank you, Lord, for this, this picture. And it certainly is a terrifying picture for those who dwell upon the earth, a sobering picture for those of us who... Um, With Paul, we would say, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Help us, Lord, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord. Strengthen us, help us to persuade men with the gospel, with your word. Lord, I pray that you'd be pleased to work through your word, through the gospel preached by the brothers and sisters, faithful brothers and sisters here. You'd be pleased to work through your own gospel preached to save many for your glory. Save many for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. Save many trophies of your grace. Um, Save many, Lord, for the praise of your name. Uh, Be with us, Lord, as we continue to persevere uh, in this dark age. Preserve us. uh, Keep our hand to the plow. May we not be discouraged when the enemy assaults us from without or from within. Uh, Help us, Lord, uh, to consider him who endured such hostility against himself in the hands of sinners, lest we become weary and discouraged in our own souls. But help us to press on in the work for the glory of your name, for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name.
and thanks for listening. My name is Mark Brashear, and I have the blessed privilege of serving with the Saints at Cornerstone Church near Orlando, Florida. We're so grateful that you've connected with us through the sermon that you've just heard. For more information, visit us at cornerstoneorlando.org. Or better yet, come and see us on the Lord's Day at 3370 Snow Hill Road in Oviedo, Florida. We're just east of Orlando and about 15 minutes from the campus at UCF. It would be a joy to have you worship with us.